This is the People in Their Work podcast. I am Professor Doug Gardner in the Student Leadership and Success Studies Department at Utah Valley University. In this podcast, you will hear the first-person stories of people journeying through their education, work, and career decision-making. In this episode of the People in Their Work podcast, we will hear from Blake Snow, a freelance writer. Blake shares the story of how he discovered his love of writing and how he persists in doing the many tasks associated with being a writer and how he balances his work and family life. Hi, my name is Blake Marriott Snow. I am a longtime resident of Provo. I moved here to go to school at Brigham Young University in 2002. Loved my time and experience here. Met a girl that I fell in love with, and I fell in love with both her and the area, and this has been home. Absolutely love Provo, so I stayed, and uh, it's been, love the air, it's been an honor to be here. I made a very calculated, logical decision that if I didn't know what I wanted to do, it seemed like business would not only be a marketable degree, but also one that I could apply myself. So if I was going to go into art, a good artist could benefit from business skills or you know, even a scientist, I guess, even if they're trying to get grant money, it'd be helpful to have a business degree. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to do business since I don't know exactly what I want to do. I went down that track. I should state I'm a, I'm a freelance writer. I've been doing that for about 15, 16 some years full time. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. It's taken me to dozens of countries. I've gotten to interview uh, hundreds of people that are way smarter than me. So I, I basically get paid to ask questions for a living and then hopefully, you know, create an article or a story that is articulate and informative and then, you know, hopefully can inspire people. So that's what I do. I'm a, I'm a freelance writer, but I got to admit that when I started college, one of the first classes I took as a freshman was English, whatever, 1001 or whatever. And I, I didn't get along with my teacher. She was having me write about classical subjects that didn't interest me at all. And so I just immediately thought, okay, writing's not for me as a naive college student. I was like, I don't like writing. And it was all because I didn't mesh well with the teacher. And not that the teacher was wrong. It just wasn't a good fit. There's a very, you know, uh, the best teachers are, it just depends on the student. And so that wasn't a good fit for me writing wise. So I had to think, I think I took another English class, kind of similar experience. Just, I thought I wasn't interested in English. And so when I'm heading down my business track, I saw that I had to do a business writing class. I was like, well, let's push that off to the very last semester of my senior year because I know I'm not good for writing. Don't like writing. That's not for me. I'm just going to procrastinate and get it, you know, put it off to the end. So had a great time at business school, a big proponent of at least an undergraduate degree because one thing that I've noticed about looking back at my time at BYU Never before, even to this day, have I ever been inundated with so many deadlines and things that are bothering you in the back of your head, like, you got to do this, you got to do that. I get to this last class, my last semester, I forget, I don't know his name, I needed to look it back up because he had such a big influence on me, but this teacher said, welcome to business writing. For this class, you're going to write about what you want to write about, what your hobbies are, what your interest, whatever speaks to you and your passions, that's what I want you to write about. And this opened up a whole new world for me and that I was just, well, I can do that. I got a lot of interests and hobbies and of course I can talk about those. And so that's what I did. And I, I absolutely fell in love with writing that final semester. And it was all about the right teacher and the right subject. So for me, technology was big, business was big and video games. That was a little hobby that I had. And so 
those three areas were just very exciting to me. So I would, I started writing about that and I was doing really well in the class. And my teacher was encouraging me like, you're a really good writer. And so I, I graduated with a degree in business. And at the time I was working as a, as a web programmer for BOU Broadcasting. So I did web design. I kind of, I backed into that as well, where I've always liked computers. And one day uh, the, the guy on the job was like, Blake, can you figure out, you know, HTML? I was like, I guess. And so I have a pretty decent eye for what looks good. So I started dabbling with that. And I did that for two years as a student. So my junior, sophomore year. So after I graduated, I knew I liked writing, but I didn't know where to go with that. So I continued as a, as a, they called it a web consultant at the time, helping just because I had a marketable skill in it and it made sense. So I did that. Whereas on nights and in between lunches and even, you know, if I was super excited about writing something, I started a blog and I would just write and write and write. I would write every night. I was overtaken by it. I absolutely loved it. So, you know, I was kind of moonlighting as an unpaid writer, not doing anything just for my own private writing um, as I'm working by day. Uh, as a web consultant or web designer. So I did that for a couple years, but a year into that uh, of my job, I I got, there was this call by AOL. That was kind of a big company back then. They're still around, American, you know, America Online, I guess they called it. They still produce a lot of content. And, and so they put out this call, like we're looking for tech bloggers. And I said, well, I've been blogging on the side. I'd love to apply. I wrote it. I wrote in, I said, I, I have a little blog, that a personal blog. This is some of my writing. And the editor loved it and said, you're on board. We're going to pay you a few hundred dollars a month to write like you've never written before. And and that's how it all started. So I started Moonlighting that second year as a web consultant. And fast forward, that was in 2000, the end of 2005, I started as a professional paid blogger, um, which back then was like, that was like a current vlogger on YouTube. Like it was like cutting edge. It was really exciting to be a part of that. So I did that for a year. And within a year of just writing, for the most part, I've written every day of my life since then, with a few exceptions, just because I love it. And so I did that that whole year. And I was able to arrange enough freelance work where I was like, I'm done. I don't love the web consulting stuff. I'm good at it, but it doesn't excite me. So I was able to say, I quit that and I've been freelancing full time ever since. I guess that would have been about near the end of 2006 because I started in 2005. In that way, I kind of backed into writing and in that I started it as a side moonlighting project, which many people's passions and and things do. That's totally normal. But I just look back and it was such a fond time to really cut my teeth and write so much and really learn how to hone my craft, which I really do credit for those first few years. You know, didn't get paid a lot, but I didn't care. I was able to support my family. I started in a job I loved. In fact, I wouldn't break. I mean, there's a whole other side story about me becoming, I would argue, a workaholic in those early years where it strained my role as a father and a, and a husband. I mean, we, that's something I had to learn a balance, which thankfully I was able to a few years into that process about balancing that. You know, it's it's totally okay to be passionate and so excited about something. And in fact, I would steer most people towards that. But at the same time, there's you, there can be too much of a good thing, even a passion, especially if you want to have a, I would argue, a very fulfilling, rich, broad life that's that includes family and relationships. And even I would argue in my case, you know, it's good for me to take a break from my writing and my passions and the subjects that I'm following just so my my brain can get some fresh air and recharge. I mean, so I had to learn that lesson along the way as well. So, you know, so the, the early years were blogging. 
again, mostly tech business and some video games. And then, so I did that for, so about three years from 2006 to 2009. And then the great recession hit. A lot of listeners might not appreciate that. That was a big deal 10 years ago where it was one of the greatest recessions that this country's gone through. So what that did for me, I was a full-time freelance writer for news media. So um, CNN, Fox, NBC, anyone that was hiring freelance gun for hires like me, as they always did, I was I was turning away work before that recession hit. Once that recession hit, journalism in particular amongst even including like retail and some other industries really cratered. And so what that did is first, all the freelancers were cut. I remember a really difficult call where an editor from San Francisco called me up and I'd been doing, uh, gosh, really steady work for them for I want to say two and a half, close to three years. They're a really big client of mine. He calls up and he says, Blake, you know, your articles are some of the best performing online. You've helped grow our website by, you know, I don't know, 10, 20%. It was really encouraging. And so I was like, oh, that's good. And he goes, but I have to say, I don't see your face. And I got people in my office that are employees and I know they got family. So I'm going to have to let you go. And it was, it was heart wrenching. It was like, it was, I mean, I understand it. I get it that I, I, you know, because I didn't have the FaceTime, but it was really hard to deal with. So a lot of journalism cratered, little sidetrack. That was a good reminder to me at that point in my career to FaceTime's important. You know, I, I've, I've worked from home for the, for this whole time. And I love that relationship. I get to eat three meals a day with my lovely wife and see my kids probably a lot more than others. And I, and I embrace that. But at the same time, I have to constantly put myself in a position to get, you know, get in a more FaceTime situation. So I made a conscious effort since then to try to go visit these clients because most of the people that buy my, you know, buy my writing are in, you know, on the, on the left coast or even the New York, a little more in the California, but some of the New York side. So I have to make it a point to try to visit people that are cutting the check. I still working on that, but that was an important thing. So journalism cratered, freelance budgets just almost went to nothing and a lot of newsrooms even shut down. So even employed people were out of work. And so I I knew quickly on, like, I'm going to have to shift. I'm going to have to do something different. If I want to keep telling stories for a living and writing for a living, I have to figure out another way. Fortunately, at the same time, there was this kind of buzzword called content marketing that came out. You know, all the businesses started saying content marketing, which basically is a fancy word for saying companies started to realize we need to start producing editorial, as we would call it, or journalism and host it on our websites or our apps to try to get our customers interested. It's no longer enough just to let them go to a news site to be informed. We want to start hiring journalists and content marketers and bringing them on board to help tell stories as it pertains to our line of work. And so I started pitching a lot of marketers and companies and that aligned well with my interest in technology and business. And then that's kind of how I pivoted. I made the switch from, um, you know, straight straight editorial journalism on behalf of news media to mostly and now predominantly branded journalism, as they would say it, or embedded journalism on behalf of companies that have budgets that want to write stories. So I'll give you an example. One of the, my favorite stories I've written for one of those companies is, is Cisco, the very big tech company from uh, San Francisco. And I did this story on how soon before a computer steals my job as a writer. <laughs> so it was a really fun 
kind of nerve-wracking story too to kind of see how good is artificial intelligence writing right now thankfully it's not good to the point where i have a job creative writing storytelling narrative storytelling but you'd be surprised to know that computers write i think it's like 100 percent of all quarterly financial reports most people wouldn't know that and 80 percent of all these sports recap summaries written recap summaries a computer wrote that it's fascinating so those are the two big industries right now that computer writing is stealing some human jobs you know or, or displacing humans so thankfully for me i'm more of a what i brand an explanatory journalist or um, an informative journalist where i try to one of my biggest passions is trying to ask why the world works the way it does and hopefully talk to experts and get some kind of current ephemeral answer as to why it is the way it is and so i like asking big dumb broad questions and get hopefully big answers to to then share in these in in the articles I've written, I'm, yeah. So that's what I've been doing largely since for the past ten years, since two thousand nine, would be branded or embedded journalism on behalf of predominantly technology companies, but also uh, management consulting companies. They hire a lot of the work that I do because they're always after kind of trying to figure out the way the world works, so they can sell that advice to another company or help their clients understand, you know, how how are computers, how are podcasting like this medium or how is YouTube vlogging affecting, you know, content in general or what should businesses be thinking about? There's going to be, I mean, even there's things that I do. It's not this glamorous job. I have to, as a, as a freelancer, I have to do bookkeeping once a week. I absolutely hate it, but you know what? It's 20 minutes a week and I get done. And there's other little jobs like that that I don't like doing. So there are some hard parts about my job. I get it. It's a first world problem. I really love my job. I got a great dream job. I would argue it certainly is my dream job. I feel very fortunate that I was able to become a writer right when blogging was was cool back then. I feel very fortunate because I do talk to a lot of aspiring writers now where it's harder because there's so much noise. Not only is blogging saturated and news media saturated, you could argue content marketing is very saturated. So I really do feel for aspiring writers that it's it really is a little harder right now to break through. Not that that'll change, not that I don't think that will change at some point. It's just oftentimes, you know, success is dependent on timing and kind of how the market and things are changing. And so right now in a very saturated world, it might take additional hard work on the behalf of an aspiring writer to break through or make their niche or find something that, you know, no one's really seen yet or talked about extensively. You know, I get that often where I just read this article that talked about how there's now becoming, since so much journalism and news and content is shifting online, you can really get niche subjects like people that love 80s horror flicks or whatever. You can you can actually find, have a following now on Patreon and these subscriber podcasts. I, it just blows my mind that a very niche topic now can actually find an audience. So there are some ways out there, but I, I do feel that, uh, you know, I was, I was the benefactor of luck and a lot of hard work. And especially when journalism cratered, I'm really grateful that, you know, the market was swift shifting more towards content marketing where companies started buying what I was writing, not just news media. So, um, been an absolute wonderful ride. Like I, like I said, to be able to ask questions for a living and I, I'm, I'm no shortage of things to say. So I get to say those in the outlet of uh, writing and, and producing journalism. So it's been great. I will say of a couple years, a, a few years ago, I back to what I was saying about, you know, what I called finding offline balance in an online world, um, you know, kind of putting my workaholic passions at bay and balancing that with my commitments and my wants for a family and relationships outside of work and an identity, frankly, outside of work. 
I wrote a book, I published a book called Log Off, How to Stay Connected After Disconnecting, which talks about kind of my story, my journey and finding that balance that many people in their 20s and 30s, at least their 30s or 40s, hopefully learn before it becomes too late. One piece of literature that really, or article that really stuck out to me many years ago, it's, it's there, there was this nurse in England, top five regrets of the dying. She, she was a hospice nurse, so she interviewed as she's helping these people, she would talk and interview something like thousands of, of people on their deathbed. And she then compiled all this data that she compiled. You know, she took notes about all these interviews and she found that the top regret of the of the dying was not spending enough time with family and friends. And so the, the onus is on humanity to realize it's very common for us to become workaholics or wrapped up wholly in our identity about how we contribute to the world. And that's very normal. But the vast majority of research says that's that's the number one regret of the dying. So I didn't want to make that same mistake. So my book is about that. I, I interviewed a lot of people about what excessive screen time and internet and social media does to us. And most people know it's not good. It can be distracting. It can prevent you from hard work, which you're going to have to do to, you know, break through in whatever field you want to do, or in this case, writing. Not only is it a major distraction, it really is shown to be, it can really kind of suck our souls out of our, you know, our spirit sometimes. And I think a lot of people know that. So the book was both a research and kind of a self-help memoir about what I've done. And that's opened a lot of great doors too, that even last year, having published this book, one of these same companies that normally would just pay me to write, you know, magazine articles for them for their website or what have you, um, reached out and said, Blake, we, we are interested in writing a book about our company history. Would you be interested? And I, was, I was flattered. And so I'm in the middle right now of, of writing a history about a company called National Instruments that not a lot of people know with. Your transmission and my transmission in my car, they use that to test. They use National Instruments to make sure our transmission works. The phone in your pocket use National Instruments to make sure it's all the semiconductor nerdy geeky stuff is working properly. NASA uses them. So it's been awesome to be able to learn about something new and and get paid to write a book about this incredible company that not a lot, not a lot of people know about, but it's ha having a big impact. And so that's, for me, we'd call that an untold story in journalism. So that's exciting to to stumble on that. The only thing I'd, I'd add too is I worked at, at Chick-fil-A in high school, and this was before cows were their marketing thing. Back then it was just chickens. I wore a chicken suit. I stayed on the side of the road and I would try to wave people down. And it was kind of humiliating, but also kind of fun. And I really, I think fondly of fast food in terms of it was very, very hard work, and it reminded me, I don't want to do this the rest of my life because a dinner rush at Chick-fil-A is like nothing you've ever seen, Probably, maybe even more hectic in a two- or three-hour uh, time period than even BYU or college was for me. So I, I look back at that. That was a very pivotal job for me that helped me, I think, move, move me away from something I didn't want to do. And then another job like that, I worked in a warehouse um, when I early in college, and it was absolutely monotonous and boring. I couldn't stand it. I I even felt sheepish that I was like, I can't believe they pay me to just sit here and wait until someone comes back from the fat, you know, the factory line needing some parts and I I would maybe fulfill two orders that took 5 minutes the whole time, but the rest of it was just sitting with a coworker in a warehouse thinking there's got to be way better ways to spend your time. So that kind of funneled me away from I guess, you know, not very demanding, not, I don't even know the word, you know, monotonous jobs. And so um, what really benefited me, I had some good advice from a professor that said, 
Don't try to go out and find what you like in life. Try a funnel method where you try to avoid things and identify things you know you don't like to do. And then suddenly you'll kind of whittle down to hopefully several career tracks or or lines of work that interest you. And then you can refine further from those. And so that that advice served me really well. And I did that in college and knowing what I didn't want to do and, and avoiding that. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, business accounting and numbers are a very important big part of business. I, I was horrible at accounting. I, I barely passed my account managerial accounting class. And I knew then I am never going to work with numbers. I'm not a bean counter. I'm not precise in that regard. That is not for me. And so I steered well clear of that as I'm trying to decide what to do. I thought ignorantly, naively, that I didn't like writing because I made a snap judgment really quick about a teacher and, I, and a whole medium, uh, you know. And so... Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the funnel method, method can't, I think, does work, but you also have to give things a fair chance and a fair shot before you can say, yes, I know with certainty this is not a, a, a career track for me or something that interests me. I still have to, I mean, even me personally, a lot of people now start asking, well, Blake, you should, you should start a YouTube channel because that's where things are going. And, you know, I, st I still have, I've been doing this for 15 years and I'm, I'm in a good place where I have, a lot of good contacts. And that's the great thing about, you know, if you find something you love and you stay with it, you uh, you get more feathers in your cap and that lends to your credibility and clout. And that makes it easier as the longer you stay in something, especially if you're passionate, it makes it easier to kind of stay in that field and grow and learn and, and get more value and provide more value. Um, but even still, I'm not immune from market changes and directions that I can't predict. And so, you know, that, yeah, what if YouTube totally takes over? The good news for me is thankfully, and I think most people know this, when someone wants to make a decision or they want to go on a vacation or they want to buy something, humans still like to read. And that's that's really what keeps me in a job still. Like the the vlogs are, are very funny and, they, and they've started to shift more where they're now being informative in terms of, you know, information on a gadget or whatever, you know, that someone, someone's interested in. But still, thankfully for me and my line of work, People value reading stuff when they're trying to inform themselves or make a decision. So that's, so I still that got, got that going for me. But it's it's uh it's something that you know is on the back of my mind. Like how you know I as a blogger many years ago, I was the kind of I was the new I was the changing of the guard, the new blood that was very difficult for some of my senior writers or that worked in news newsrooms. You know, we were known for working faster. And being multimedia, I mean, I was do taking photos, uploading photos, writing headlines, writing the story. Whereas before, there would be someone that would only write headlines. They call them copy editors. There'd be someone that only write copy. And that just seems so foreign to me that, you know, I grew up in the world where you did it all. Photo, headline, proofreading, you know, some mistakes would skip by, which a lot of bloggers we got, you know, people like, oh, you're not credible because you misspelled it. And the world changed. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I'm not ignorant that that same thing can't happen to me, that these vloggers are something new that's still unpredictable. It can change and displace you. But I think to come overcome that, I read a lot. That helps me. I stay informed and I write a lot. And I'm confident that if, as I keep doing that, um, I'm a big believer that if you produce good work, the money will follow. It, it's not... It's not always going to be maybe the most money, but I, I truly believe you can provide you can provide or have a, a good income. Even I talked with someone that 
she loves cleaning and she started a cleaning business and and sadly people look down upon cleaning as a, it's an inferior and I get that I know that but for this lady she loves it and she's grown it to a point where she's making really good money and she's obviously got some entrepreneurial things in there too but she combined a love of cleaning and tidiness with business and has a business that she really loves and so you know oftentimes I think we try to discredit that that an, as an artist or whatever you can't make it but I I just totally disagree that if if there is a if there's a if there's a need out there and you work really hard and you can provide a good service the money will follow so oftentimes i think we might worry too much about where can i chase the money rather than this idea of if you really like what you do and you work hard the money almost always follows I, i'll i'll say that i'll concede that there probably are some exceptions to that and my heart goes out to anyone that's in that field or specific track but i truly believe that that more often than not that that takes care of itself. If you are interested in being a, a freelance writer or a, some type of creative that has to ask someone for work, I'll, I'll just prepare you by saying you're, most of your life, and I would argue most of people's life is going to be rejection. So I've asked, it's got to be over 10,000 times if I can write a story for someone. It has to be close to that. I may, I'm just, that's an estimate, but it, I know it's thousands of times. I mean, I've been told yes hundreds of times. That's the difference that we're going. So my life is one predominantly of rejection. And that could be, we don't like your writing. We think you're a bad fit. But mostly it's timing, Blake. Oh, it's, you know, we're year in. We're doing other stuff. Ask us again. And so for me, being persistent where I'm constantly asking editors, hey, it's me again. You got anything I might be a good fit for? Or here's a story idea I think might help. The vast majority I'm getting told no. And then every now and then, thanks to that persistence, I get told yes, and it's life-giving, exciting. I get a new assignment. I get to write it. I get to you know, provide for my family, and that carries me to the next yes. And so part of life, whether that's writing or any career, you're just going to be bombarded with rejection. And it's not a personal affront or attack on who you are. It's mostly, in my opinion, an, an issue of timing. Um, oftentimes, it will be bad fit, but it's just timing. So if you can just persist and stay in touch that that has blessed my life and my career i wouldn't be able i wouldn't be here today talking to you about being a freelance writer for 16 years if it wasn't for persistence so that has just blessed my life so much oftentimes though you need to it's tough because i think of like someone that's not born with an athletic talent let's say you know let's say you have a child that's just not athletically gifted and if they decide to persist in a talent that the market doesn't isn't going to pay for, they're, they're in a tough spot. So you do have to have talent. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say persistence will prevail. It really is a combination of both. You do have to understand that you have a natural talent and you have to persist. And if you have both of those things, in my opinion, more often than not, if not all 99% of the time, it's going to it's going to work out for you. So that you do have to make some judgment calls of like, is this really a talent? I'm getting a lot of naysayers or haters or critics saying I'm not good at this. Should I listen to them? And and that's something even I've had to deal with. I get more hate mail. A few months ago, I wrote a story and I created I, I had a typo and my editor didn't catch it. And some, I think it was a man wrote in just disgusted that I would have as a professional writer, a typo. And he made really crass statements like, you shouldn't be a writer. This is a, which of course is wrong. I'm allowed to type. That's another thing about my job. People are like, 
writers aren't supposed to be perfect. They're just supposed to be fun to read and, and good with words and sentences, and which I believe I am and my career shows that. It doesn't mean I'm perfect and I'm never going to make a mistake with a typo. And so you do have to balance those haters or those critics and naysayers because they're never going to go away. They're still affecting me. But the good news is most people, the people that hire me, my wife, I get a lot of good feedback saying, you're a good writer. And I don't rest on that laurel, but that, that helps me put those haters and naysayers in place to where a point where I'm just like, they're a naysayer. You know, I'll give you another example because I have to ask so often, Hey, can I, can I write? Does this story work for you? Um, again, most times people ignore me. So I just, you know, I assume that's a no, very rarely they say yes. And the most rare thing is a very hurtful outburst email where, and that's the thing I, I do email. I don't do call cold calling anymore, but a, a person would be like, how dare you? You should have known when I didn't reply on the fifth time that I wasn't interested. This is spam. You're a horrible person. I mean, people can have bad days and they can get really hurtful. And so that's the least, that's the, that's the response that comes the least, but it still stings. It stings. And it makes you doubt like, wow, maybe am I? Wow. But then you have to remember, no, I've got this. I have hundreds, if not thousands of people that have supported me and encouraged me and, and paid me. And, and this one isolated incident that might happen once every couple years is in no way an indication of all these other positive signals I'm getting. So you do have to balance that, you know, uh, those critics that will never go away. But if you've got a lot of fans, then you might know, okay, I, I got a talent here. And if I persist, I'm, I'm, I'm confident I can concede in it, I, I succeed in it. So that's, that's a tough spot. I mean, a tough thing, but it's, it's served me really well by being, you know, that persistence. And the last thing I'd say about being a freelance writer, it's because I don't have a sales team or an advertising team or an agent. I, the way I say it is I have to wear that salesman hat. I have to be able to deal with that rejection, which I'm comfortable doing. It's still hard, still hard to deal with those really mean no's or just getting ignored again and again and again and again and again. But it's something I know it's worth doing that part of my job, which sometimes might be 30%, 25% of my job. It's worth doing that work to get to do the 70, 80% that I absolutely love. Even someone that is out on their own, like myself, I've been blessed with by timing and hard luck. Um, even then, I have to, you got to do things you don't like to do. That's just part of work. That's why we call it work. There's this great quote from Tom Sawyer where he's charged with painting a fence white, painting that's miserable and he can't stand it. And somehow he gets this idea like, hey, wait a second, if I can... If I can make this out to be a glamorous thing and maybe talk people into wanting to do it, it'll be fun. And by the end of the chapter, people want to pay Tom like a quarter to paint. You know, so if, if for if work, well, I say that because work is always going to be work. But if you can make something fun like Tom Sawyer did, it's not so much work. So work is work. Even I can't avoid that. I am Doug Gardner, and this has been the People in Their Work podcast. Music by Christopher Weiss. Images are from the UVU Roots of Knowledge stained glass exhibit by Holdman Studios.